Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, everybody. A couple of months ago, we released something just on our Patreon where I am talking to an expert about Northanger Abbey. I so enjoyed this conversation and I so love this novel that we have actually decided to do a pilgrimage about Northanger Abbey in Bath, where the bulk of the novel takes place. And we are going to play that conversation. But first, we have a little bonus conversation, which is me talking to you, Margaret H. Willison. Hello, Margaret. Hi, Vanessa. Thank you so much for having me here. You and I both love Northanger Abbey. Yes, correct. We are, I think, Northanger Abbey partisans. Yes. Like, we rep for it hard, despite many people not having not having read it or our perception that other people don't like it. Yeah. Which turns out isn't correct. Right. So you and I, who both love this novel so much, are like, let's actually just do a Northanger Abbey pilgrimage. Of all of the Austin novels, it is most placed in one specific real named city. And this named real city still exists and is called Bath and is still amazing and looks very Georgian. And it is a novel about how going to a new place can change you. And that is what pilgrimages are. So I don't know why we didn't do this earlier. I'm so glad that it's an idea you and I came up with because it really does work so well. Bath is a character in Northanger Abbey. And like what you said, what's especially fun is that it's a character that will function in the book the same way that it functions for our pilgrims, where it is your first step into this foreign world. And that's one of the things that's so thrilling about Bath as a city is that it really gives you this out of time sense. Yeah, It is fully developed in the 18th century as like a resort town where people would go to drink mineral water and like take hot baths for their gout. And it has this totally aesthetic, cohesive presence. And so when you step into it, especially if you've read a lot of Austin or Regency romance novels, it's a little bit like going to Disneyland (laughs) because it's so immersive. But at the same time, it's still like a thriving modern city. And I'm just really excited to look at that space and to think about how that city showed up in Jane Austen's own life and how it shows up in Catherine's life in the novel. And use that as a way to reflect on how do we, knowing ourselves as unfinished projects, step into a world that seems so complete? How do we navigate that and learn enough to understand it and learn enough to feel at home? And I'm so excited about this. I don't know. I can't do better than that. (laughs) I first read Northanger Abbey in college, just like as an assignment in an Austin class. And I liked it. I was like charmed by it, but it did. It felt light to me. And then I reread it during the pandemic and I was like, holy heck, this (laughs) novel like could be written today about the Me Too movement. This novel is about what we are scared of, but what is actually at risk for us and how we are like afraid of boogeymen. (laughs) It is making fun of gothic novels. 
while it is very much like actually a horror novel, right? Like it's like, no, no, it's not vampires that are scary. It's like the guy who you're in the carriage with who's maybe scary. And it is like the fact that you don't come from money (laughs) that is scary. And it is like still so light and funny. And there are all the ridiculous Austin characters, like the woman who literally only talks about muslin the entire novel. And then it is also like, Truly this great love story because Henry Tilney is the greatest Austin hero, which I actually think is a great transition to the conversation that I had with Professor Leslie Goodman about Northanger Abbey and what makes it so great. So we are now going to play this conversation that I had a couple of months ago and released on Patreon, and we hope that you enjoy it and become as obsessed with Northanger Abbey as we are, and then join us on a pilgrimage in order to just fall more and more in love with it and become more and more obsessed with it. And you can learn more about that trip at readingandwalkingwith.com. Thank you, Margaret. Thank you, Vanessa. This is such a cool thing to be able to do. We are lucky enough to be joined this week by Professor Leslie Goodman. She is the chair of the English department at Albright College, and she was the professor of communications manager at Not Sorry Productions, Hannah Rehack. So we have seen like proof in the pudding that Dr. Goodman is clearly a brilliant scholar and teacher. And so we were like, we need some of that. So what you are going to hear is a conversation between me and Professor Goodman. We ended up talking to Professor Goodman after the interview ended. So you might hear Ariana jump in (laughs) at some point because she was here. She's always here and brilliant, but we might not even be able to cut her this time. So enjoy this little conversation with Professor Goodman and then this bonus conversation with Professor Goodman that we didn't actually know we were having until it was done. Hi, Leslie. Hi. Thank you so much for coming on and talking about what controversially I sometimes think of as my favorite Austin novel. That is controversial. I know. I don't know if it's actually my favorite or if it's just that I love it and it's an underdog. Anyway, it's probably not actually my favorite, but I love it so much. So my first question is really mean, but I'm wondering if you can do, we say a 30 second recap, but just like a brief recap of Northanger Abbey. All right. Okay. I can try. I don't know how brief it'll be. So basically we have Catherine Moreland. The novel begins with this great line about how no one who ever met her would suppose her to be a heroine. So I think it's important to understand that the novel is this kind of sustained sort of parody or pastiche of the Gothic tradition. So Catherine is this very ordinary girl. She doesn't have any tragic backstory. She's not especially gifted in anything, but she gets the opportunity to go to Bath. She's very excited to go to balls and to meet people. She falls in with um, Isabella Thorpe, who, like Catherine, loves reading, loves Gothic novels in particular. They form an immediate friendship. And then she also meets Mr. Henry Tilney, who's introduced Mm -hmm. to her and is very kind to her. And she sort of immediately develops a crush on him and wants to keep dancing with him. Isabella also introduces Catherine to her brother, John Thorpe, who sort of shows to an extent some kind of interest in Catherine, but it's kind of tied with his interest in his horses. And she doesn't really notice. Her brother James comes and Isabella and James have this flirtation going on that Catherine also doesn't really notice. She's not the noticing type, really. And yeah, she grows in her relationship with Mr. Tilney. She meets his sister, Eleanor. 
And through that means, she ends up getting invited to spend some time in the Tilney home, Northanger Abbey. She's very excited because the Abbey is a kind of Gothic trope of the, the type of scary, exciting house where scary, exciting things happen and there's secret chambers and ghosts and dead nuns and things like that. So she goes and she kind of gets overexcited about the Gothic potentials of the house, kind of develops a theory that maybe Henry's father killed Henry's mother, General Tilney's wife that she can maybe solve this mystery. Um, it's incredibly embarrassing. I feel often vicariously embarrassed for her when Henry Tilney comes and is like, have you been, have you been suspecting that my father's a murderer? And she's like, yeah, I, I did actually. And he's like that. <laughs> no, 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 that's not what's happening. And everything is going well. General Tilney, Henry's father, seems to want to make this match happen, but then very abruptly and rudely while Henry is away, he just sends Catherine home without kind of money, without any servants for what's like a 17-hour journey. She has no idea why, but it seems like everything is all over. She's home. She's very sad. And then luckily, Henry Tilney finds out what happened here. And he goes and he seeks her out and they, they get married and everything is resolved. Happily, romantically. How's that? That was so good. And I was like, oh, my God, I want to reread it. I haven't read it in about a year. And I'm like, ah, I need to go reread this. So do you have like a theory on Northanger Abbey? What does the general scholarship say about this novel? You know, it is sort of an, an odd bird, I think, because of its role as this gothic pastiche. I think the take on it that I've always um, I don't I didn't invent it. I don't know who did, unfortunately, but it got put into my brain and I've passed it on to the brains of other people, is that these gothic tropes, they're all kind of exploded. But on the other hand, Austin is kind of connecting them with what I think are realistic fears yes. about what wifehood means in, in this time period for her. And actually, the things that happen sort of end up, they're not, you know, someone murdered his wife and hid her body in a, in a closet. But there are kind of versions of that. Like Thorpe, I think, when he doesn't let her get out of the carriage, he sort of, in yes. some ways, abducted her. She doesn't want to go with him because she has this appointment with Henry Tilney and his sister that she's very excited about. The weather gets in the way, so it's like a little bit ambiguous. But then he, he lies to her. He says, they're definitely not coming. I saw them. They're doing something else. And then when they see them on the street in his carriage... He prevents her. She tells him to stop. He doesn't stop. Right. And I think when you're reading it in particular, it's really frustrating and it all works out fine because it's not actually, she's not a Gothic heroine, right? She's an ordinary girl who's lives in an ordinary world for the most part, but it's also deeply upsetting. And it does point to the ways in which, you know, as a woman and potentially as a wife, she doesn't actually have a lot of power should someone wish to overpower her. You're kind of relying on good luck and good nature because she does, doesn't really have necessarily that many like set in stone rights. Nothing bad happens to her, right? He's not um, kidnapping her or assaulting her, but it is still very, very frustrating and unnerving. Yes, this is what I loved about the novel. <laughs> You know, I read it in college and then I just reread it for fun last year. And I was like, holy heck, this is like 
so prescient. It felt like a Me Too novel, mm-hmm. right? Because there's a moment where, like, so, he is literally pulling on her arm, restraining her from going where she wants to go. And she repeats again and again, like, no, I want to do this other thing. And a critical thinker who I really love is this woman, Sarah Marshall, who talks a lot about the satanic panic and how what was actually happening during the satanic panic was that what we weren't talking about was child abuse, that like child abuse was harder to prove than ever because women were more mistrusted. And there were like all sorts of things sort of going on in the house that we were like, no, 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 there's Satan worshipers. And like, that's the threat to our children. And it's like, no, the threat to the children is actually inside the house, right? And, like, that Austin was saying this 200 years ago, that, like, it's not a gothic novel. It isn't that women frequently are being chopped up and put into boxes inside of a, a gothic abbey. Not frequently, right? But, like, women are, like, being pushed around, and, and it's scary. It's scary. People can just, like, pull you into a carriage, and, like, a lot of the time you're fine. But it's just a gothic experience to be a woman with so little power in the world. Yeah. And your, your agency, your choice is just not respected. Right. The follow-up scene where they try and get her to go again and get her to break her appointment with the Telmies again, she ultimately gets away with from it and from them. But that is also very frustrating to me, I think, because you have Isabella and James, her brother, James joining in to say like, no, 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 you should break that appointment. Like we, everyone wants you to do this. They won't care. And so, I mean, I, I, not to use a kind of overused and poorly understand term, but there's a little bit of gaslighting, I think, going on there where they're like, this is a completely appropriate thing to do. And she's like, no, I think this is really rude and actually just wrong. I told them I would go and I have a duty to kind of honor my word. And you're trying to get me not to honor my word. And Catherine is not a character who really demonstrates that much like willfulness. She generally kind of accepts what people tell her. And that's something kind of lovable about her. And so it's really fascinating for her that here she is able to say, "I, I really do feel like my judgment tells me it's wrong to do this. And so, and it's not only my judgment tells me it's wrong, but my desires also, I don't want to go. I want to see the Tildes. Yeah. And then they do this again a little bit when they try and convince her that she has kind of led Thorpe on and that they kind of talked about a possible marriage between them. And that to some extent, she's basically already agreed to marry him. And she's like, what? I had no idea he was even, he was even interested (laughs) in That one's, they kind of give it up, I think, fairly easily, Isabella does, but it sort of seems like they're really kind of railroading her into this. And it's very hard for her to, it's like, luckily she likes Henry Tilney enough. Yeah. And luckily he's a nice guy and like, likes her enough, right? Yeah. I have a theory that Austin thinks that a way to signify, you know, the, the save a cat theory, if you want to make a character likable, you have them save a cat. The way that Austin has a character be signified as likable is if they care about keeping their appointments. Oh, that's fascinating. Like Anne Elliot, right? You're like, oh, Anne Elliot's a good person. She's like, no, I'm going to go visit Miss Smith. And her dad and sister are bad people because they're like, break the engagement. And Anne's like, no. And Catherine cares about keeping her appointment. I feel like Austin is like, that's how you're going to know she's a good person. She keeps her commitments and is punctual. (laughs) Well, punctuality is really, I think, undervalued. I do, too. So correct me if I'm wrong. 
Northanger Abbey was the first novel that Austen finished in its entirety. Is that correct? Like, it, not that it got published, but she wrote it first. I think so. I think this is the one where she wrote it and then she actually sold or her brother helped her kind of sell the copyright to it. And then the publisher said, mm, I know I just paid for this, but no, thanks. Like, I'm just going to kind of hold on to the rights of it and not actually print it. And then they had to go back and I think buy it back when she was more well known. And then Persuasion was her last novel, right? It was it was published posthumously. So it's just interesting because we just talked about Persuasion a couple weeks ago. And it is interesting that Anne and Catherine seem most like each other of any of the Austin heroines, right? Like Emma's really different from Lizzie and Fanny is an oddball in all the ways. And, you know, but Catherine and Anne are both two women who care about doing the right thing and have to learn how to advocate for themselves. It seems like they're on sort of similar journeys. And I just think that's interesting that that was something that Austin was thinking about like essentially over the span of 20 years. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that Catherine feels very young Yes, as well. I think Catherine's also an interesting parallel with Marianne in Sense of Sensibility. Marianne takes it a step further. I believe Sense of Sensibility was actually the next novel that she wrote after, well, the next novel, published novel that we know of that she wrote after Northanger Abbey. And so like Marianne's willingness to kind of see herself in a romance and to see herself as being part of a romantic rescue. And both Catherine and Marianne get kind of instructed out of that. But I think like Marianne is so significantly chastised for that. Whereas Catherine kind of gets out of it with just like a little bit of embarrassment. And then she gets to keep keep the man, um, which obviously Marianne does not. She doesn't have to go through a near-death experience. Right. It's much gentler for Catherine. Yeah. I mean, it's, I think it's a very gentle book in a way. I'm wondering, this this season of our podcast was very much about Pride and Prejudice, and so I'm wondering if there are any threads from Northanger Abbey that you feel like really are tied to Pride and Prejudice. Where are the moments, other than the skill of the writing, where you're like, ah, yes, this is a very Austin novel? Oh, that's an interesting question. I've mostly been thinking about actually how it's different. Oh, great. That's fascinating too. Please. Well, I think I've been just thinking about how like the relationships, because I know it sounds like you guys have been thinking about love stories and what's romantic. And I think to me, it seems like the nature of the love between Catherine and Henry is in a lot of ways quite different in my mind from most of the other, maybe actually not Anne and Wentworth is maybe the one where it's most similar to go back to your your point about the connection. But I think it's just that they really like each other. Yeah. And they really seem like they take a lot of enjoyment from each other. There's a lot of mutual, like I think Henry in particular really appreciates Catherine. And it kind of starts out, it's just like they meet and they like each other, right? That's kind of, the tension doesn't come from any kind of misunderstanding between them. I think in Austin, a lot of times, and maybe this is something you've talked about, like love is kind of pedagogical. Mm -hmm. So somebody is sort of, teaching someone something else. Someone kind of exists in the in life, like um, Emma and Mr. Yeah. Knightley. Like he has a lot to teach her and she has a lot to learn. And so I think a lot in Pride and Prejudice about once Elizabeth and Darcy are kind of together, I think it's near the end, she says maybe to his sister, like he's going to have to learn to be teased. Yeah. He's going to kind of have to like unclench a little <laughs> bit if he's going to have me in in his life. 
And there's a little bit of that pedagogy in, in Henry and Catherine, but it's more like actual pedagogy. Like he's going to teach her how to understand foreground and background in, in painting. And her judgment needs a little bit of development, but he, when he kind of helps her with that, he is doing this kind of Socratic method with her where he's like, now, if you ask yourself, do you really think that, you know, you'll be doing your brother a favor if you tell him what Isabella is up to? Cause she's flirting with Tilney's brother. Do you really think he would appreciate that? Or do you think maybe this is something that he needs to work out for herself? And she's like, yeah, actually, upon thinking about it, I see what you mean. So there's a a kind of gentleness to it, which never suggests, I think, a desire to change her nature, right? I think they really appreciate, to me, who each other is, and they laugh together a lot. Like from the moment they first meet. Catherine is laughing and he's laughing too. And I love that's what I would want. And that's what I like in a relationship is laughter. I think that that's why I love this novel so much is just like Henry's funny. He's like confident, but not preachy and arrogant, right? Like I'm like, oh, he's my favorite Austin here. Well, I think this is the connection with Henry Bridges. I think he's maybe a lot like Elizabeth. Yes. And who doesn't actually fall in love with Elizabeth? No, I mean, that's what there's that. I don't know if you guys talked about this. There's somebody sort of famously said like Elizabeth Bennett is like the one heroine in literature that one would seriously like to marry. She's funny and she's fun and she's vivacious. And I think Henry is also funny and fun and vivacious. The scene where they're in the carriage and he's just kind of telling her gothic stories. And she's like, oh, my God surely that can't happen. And then she's like, but keep going. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I feel like they're, they're going to have fun with each other. And he's very witty. Yes. So when he first meets her, he's kind of playing that same game of here's how we're supposed to be conversing. And isn't that like what Elizabeth does with Darcy when they dance at an early part? She's like, no, um, this is the moment where you're supposed to say this. And this is the moment where I'm supposed to say that. How big the room is. Yeah. So there's a little bit of that. He's he's got that kind of ironic distance from some social conventions that Elizabeth does as well. Not too distant, right? He's not cynical. And I think he takes seriously the idea that it's very clear to him that she has feelings for him. And that that's something that he needs to kind of respect and not trifle with. Right. And to encourage her to continue developing those feelings is, I think, tantamount to a kind of commitment. His father wants him to end it with her because it turns out she doesn't have the money that his father thought she had. And I think he says not only, you know, he likes her and he loves for her and he cares for her, but also it would be in some ways really inappropriate for him at this point to have let their relationship develop this far to have given her so many signs that this is leading to a marriage and then to end it it would be cruel and so I I appreciate that he kind of honors that she has maybe feelings for him that he and Eleanor can see and maybe she's not certainly is not aware that she's showing and may not even be aware of the extent of them I yeah I I really have persuaded myself during this call that I don't think Northanger Abbey is actually my favorite Austin. I just think it is like legitimately such a fantastic book and funny and delightful and infuriating in all the right ways. It's incredible to me just like how contemporary it feels like the issues that Austin is articulating. I was like, oh, this is a Me Too novel. 
Like, this is a novel about consent. Well, I think the metafictional elements are kind of what make it or break it for a lot of people. So some people, I think, can find that to be disruptive to their kind of emotional experience of it. If those kind of references, you know, at the end, she says, I'm sure the reader can tell by the compression of the pages that we're wrapping up towards a conclusion. So if that kind of takes you out of it, then I think it can be difficult to enjoy. But some people really enjoy that. Like they find that kind of funny. And I don't think that has to interrupt your experience of the romance of it. It's charming. It is a charming book. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, thank you so much for coming to talk to us about just this delightful novel. I'm going to start rereading it tonight. It's just so good. Well, I'm so glad to have inspired a rereading. You know, there's also, I listened to, there's an audiobook version where Emma Thompson, it's kind of um, a reading, but also a dramatization. So there are, you know, there's actors, there's the narrator voice, which is Emma Thompson, but then there's also actors kind of doing the dialogue. And there's a couple of scenes where the narrator in Northanger Abbey is kind of describing it that they've kind of put into dialogue. But there's, you know, there's like sound in the background, there's hoofbeats and everything. So it's about six hours long. I listened to it um, the last couple of weekends to refresh my memory. And it was quite, it was quite delightful. I mean, we love Emma Thompson. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We're not idiots. She doesn't miss. Okay. We got to wrap up though. It- such a pleasure to talk to you about this. And I'm really restraining myself because you mentioned the metafiction. And I'm like, what is the metafiction doing? Because it's not Brechtian. Like it's not, or is it? Is it meant to take you out of the story? But I think you're supposed to be in the story anyway. We're going to just set that aside for another discussion about your <laughs> thing you're happy. I have a lot of strong feelings about it. So I'm happy to talk about it. You do have strong opinions or you don't? I do have strong opinions. Is it breaking the fourth wall? Um, I think that... I guess I object to the idea that breaking the fourth wall is breaking the fourth wall. The illusion theory of fiction. Yeah, we all know we're reading. Basically, I don't think this idea that we're in an illusion, we have to forget about reality to get emotionally absorbed in these characters. I think that there are, I mean, I'm not going to tell people their experiences. I think there are certainly ways in which that is an experience, but I think that there's a tremendous number of times in which we are emotionally absorbed in characters while also aware that we're reading a work of fiction that's made by creators. And I think that those two things coexist and can even actually increase the experience, the experience of emotional engagement a lot more often than we've got all these metaphors lost in a book. Breaking the fourth wall also is kind of one of those, the idea, I, you know, reality around me faded. And I just think that those have come to dominate our understanding of how fiction and storytelling works, when in fact, I think that they're, they're only one end of the experience of fiction. That's, I guess, my, my take. I think sometimes what she's doing with pointing to the fact that it's a novel is meant to like some kind of distancing, some kind of pushing away. But the way that she does it is actually like a a pulling towards an intimacy. It's like, you know how novels are. Wink, wink. You're like, yeah, I am smart. I would be best friends with Austin, which like. Well, and that's the thing. I mean, I think like, I love the adaptations, but I think that's actually something that gets kind of lost in the adaptation is how much of the experience of an Austin novel is your experience with a narrator and the narrator's voice and the narrator's worldview and like Pride and Prejudice is great because Elizabeth is often very aligned with it and 
like Mansfield Park, I think is an example where the main character, Fanny, is not aligned with it. This is actually why, as we talked about earlier, in that Mansfield Park adaptation, they turn Fanny into a kind of Jane Austen type. Yeah. She's someone who wants to be a writer. They put the, the narrator's words about novel writing from Northanger Abbey into her mouth because there's that there's a struggle there to think like, how can our primary alignment in a work of fiction actually be with the narrative voice and not with the fictional character, but it is right. It's just, that's not kind of our dominant model of how storytelling works, which is all about, I love the character, especially romances, right? You're supposed to root for the characters to get together. And so like, that seems to be the paradigm. So how can it be that actually the thing you care most about is the narrator, right? She's not falling in love with anyone, but I, I do think that's like a huge part of the pleasure of Austin and, I think especially, again, Pride and Prejudice is maybe the easiest way in because it might be the novel that depends least on your appreciation of the narrative voice for your enjoyment of the novel. But Emma, I think, really depends on that. I mean, people have a hard time with Emma a lot of times. The Emma the character, not Emma the... I just taught Persuasion and my students kind of had a hard time with what they perceived as Anne's the word that came up a lot was the complacency. Like we were talking a lot about emotional labor in that class and the amount that she's kind of put upon by her family. And so we had all these conversations. Why is she accepting that? Why isn't she pushing back? And they wanted, I think, her to be a different type of character than she is. But I also think like that's only part of the novel is how much you like Anne. But there's that pre- appreciation of the narrative voice. And that's also Austin's kind of stylistic innovation in a lot of ways, as I'm sure you've talked about at some point on this podcast. Yeah. So I think that's a huge part of the alignment. Yeah. And that's why that that metafictional, when that narrator is often forcing you to agree with her opinions, lest you be an idiot, right? She kind of makes you feel like if you agree with this, like maybe you're, um, you're naive, right? Or you're um, too cynical. And so that may be how that metafictional element kind of brings you in. You think I think also you can tell that she kind of loves Catherine. I think the narrator of Northanger Abbey loves Catherine yeah, in the same way that I sure. think Henry Tilney actually loves her. Like she's naive, she's a little foolish sometimes, but she's sweet and she's at heart like a really loving, good-natured person. And because the narrator loves her own seems to love her own character, the fact that the character is clearly a character doesn't prevent us from loving her or appreciating her as well. I will say that the way that, I don't know if I disagree with the absorption in the novel, something that always takes me out of a novel or almost hurts my feelings in a novel is when a character is reading a novel in a novel and it's written about sort of in a nonchalant way of like, oh, he was in a corner reading a book. And that fourth wall breaking, which, right, like, isn't even, it it feels like it's diminishing the thing that I am currently engaged in. If it's like, ah, she was, like, sitting there reading a book. And I'm like, well, that's what (laughs) I'm sitting here doing. And it's really important. Thank you. And then I think also, like, how people, it depends, but... I don't know. We're all book people here. I think we're all story people. So sometimes how people talk about stories and what's great about literature 
it's easy at least for me to get a little sensitive about it and be like, that's not what it is. Like, and you know, are you just, it's sometimes yeah, it feels terrible. like a little bit, it can feel a little bit cliche, but it's like, that's probably just my kind of hypersensitivity to it. Whereas, I mean, that's just how, not how I articulate my experience. That doesn't mean that it's wrong. But again, that's like, I think that's kind of a me problem or maybe a book person's problem that like when people, when characters are book people, it gets a little bit like, it kind of gets my back up and I'm like, are you going to do it? Right. Like, do you really know what like a book person is? Anyway, it's easy right. just to be a little, a little touchy about it. I understand. Leslie, thank you so much. It's such a delight. And I could talk to you about Austin all day, but I understand that you have a job. Well, it's not that important a job. I could talk about Austin <laughs> some more. <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm dropping into your feed to let you know that starting June 23rd, you are invited to a class called Discovering Your Own Patron Saints, a guided workshop with Natalie Folkerts. In this six-session class, you will explore beloved characters from literature who have jumped off the page and made their way into the moral fabric of your life. The first week of this class, you're going to explore what we mean by patron saints, and then each subsequent week will be devoted to a different value, wonder, imagination, grief, and courage. If you are seeking spiritual guidance outside of the constraints of formal religion, if you are someone who finishes a novel and feels like you have said goodbye to new friends, then this class is for you. Register before the first class on June 23rd by going to notsorryworks.com. That's N-O-T-S-O-R-R-Y-W-O-R-K-S dot com.